dedicate this sermon to a very special person. I've never met him, and I'm longing to meet him in heaven one day. And so this message is in the memory, or in honor of his memory, and with thanks to God for him. What would you say is the most popular text which is quoted today? As you read books and hear sermons, I know Pastor Sunday quoted it in his prayer. But we'll leave John 3.16 out of it because it's so popular. But the three I chose, excluding 3.16, are the following. In fact, I went onto the internet to check what is being looked up by way of Bible references on the internet, and sure enough, my, sure enough, my three verses were there amongst the 12 listed. And so the first one I've got, in fact, the first two, I'm just going to spend a few seconds on, but the third one is the one that's going to determine the passage of Scripture that the Lord wants to consider with us this morning. The first one is Jeremiah 29:11. Oh, yes, I can see all of you nodding. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. It goes on, by the way, to say, then you will call upon me and I will hear you. We often don't quote the full verses, as it were. And you know, what we've got to do with these verses is please to look at them in context. I did this with John 3.16, by the way, and I came across some very significant things when you look at John 3.16 in context. Same with Jeremiah 29.11. This is a letter written by Jeremiah to the exiles in Babylon. That's the first thing Jeremiah did when the exiles reached Babylon, 800 miles away from Jerusalem. He wrote a letter to them. It's a long letter. It's all in chapter 29. You need to know the whole chapter to know the promise that God gives you there. And so if anyone here this morning is far from where the Lord wants you to be, well, Jeremiah says, prosper where you are. Settle down. Have families. Be a blessing to your, your town, your cities. Grow your business. Make some money. Because you're there for a long time, boys. 70 years. You neglected the land for 70 years. You're going to have to stay there for 70 years. Then I will bring you back to where I want you to be. And so it's a lovely promise for us to take into this new year. Should you be somewhere where you know the Lord doesn't want you to be for too long. It's so true that the future belongs to those who belong to God. And Jeremiah 29, 11 is all about hope. The second one I chose was Philippians 4.13. One which I got even before I became a Christian. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Again, it suffers from being misquoted out of context. Well, this verse is saying to us, no matter how small your pension is, no matter how big your pension is, no matter whether your cupboards are hardly got any food in them, or whether your cupboards are stacked with food, it does not matter concerning your income. You have learned to be content by following the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I've learned a secret of contentment, that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. In fact, that verse can be read like this. I can go through all seasons through Christ. And the Greek says, who keeps on giving me strength. Strength in surplus. Here's a lovely verse to take with you into the new year. But the third verse is the one I want to spend a few more moments on. And this verse will lead us into the verses that we must consider together this morning. And it is Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28. We'll look at those verses as we go through the sermon this morning. So let's do with, to this promise 
what we've done to the other two promises. Let's look at it in context. This verse has been called the pillow promise. That once this promise really gets into your heart, you sleep well. You'll sleep well. When this verse really grips you. Now, Romans, of course, is a vital book for Christians. I'm not going to go into the historical significance of that. But just to say that many people have called Romans 8 the greatest chapter in the Bible. And I'd say amen to that. It's got everything in it. There's a gentleman staying in the complex that I stay in, and he says, Genesis 1 is the best chapter in the Bible. <laughs> I said, brother, what about Romans 8? Anyway. <laughs> Romans 8 is so important, I've memorized it. Now, of course, I've got to re-memorize it all the time because my memory ability is getting less and less as I get older. But it's wonderful to have memorized Romans chapter 8 and to go for walks and to say this chapter in your mind as you're walking with God. By the way, that's what it means to walk with God. It is meditating on Scripture and taking Scripture as you go for your walk, as you live your life. The Word of God comes to you. What's that? The Word, Jesus, is walking with you. And here's an outline I came across as I memorized this chapter. Verses 1 to 4, please, I'm going quick now. I'm not going to get bogged down here. Verses 1 to 4, no more I, only Christ. No more I of the frustrated I of chapter 7 of Romans. Now it's Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Verses 5 to 17, no more death, only life. For if the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead is living in you, then he will by his spirit give life to your mortal bodies. Life to these bodies. Though they're getting older, yet they've been renewed. Our inner man has been renewed day by day. Verses 18 to 27, no more despair, only hope. For into this hope we have been saved. Now right here, let's look at the verses that precede Romans 8.28. Because those few words at the beginning are so important. We often also don't quote them. Paul says, and now we know. And we know. How can we be so certain that all things, that God is working in all things for our good? How do we know this? Well, the reason we know the truth of Romans 8.28 is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Four times he's mentioned in these two verses. In fact, he has something for you to do when you've got some spare time. Study chapter 8 of Romans and see what it can teach you about the Holy Spirit. I noted 17 things down there about the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8. Well, first of all, we see here that he helps us. He helps us. And what indispensable help he gives us when it comes to this only lifeline that we've got to God, and that is prayer. Prayer. The Holy Spirit has taken residence up in your life. Where has he taken residence up? In your spirit that has been justified by faith through faith in Jesus Christ. He's taken residence up in your spirit. And when we pray, we've got to be conscious of the fact that the Holy Spirit, God himself, is praying with you and for you with such intensity that not even words can express it. Only the Father can hear you hear what the Spirit is saying on your behalf and for your sake. Remember that when you pray. Rely on the Spirit when you pray. Jude says we are to pray in the Spirit. 
He helps us. And by the way, it doesn't help us to say our prayers. Unbelievers say their prayers. But he helps us to pray, to really humble ourselves and to speak words of faith to the Lord our Father. Notice how intimate he is with us. He's witnessing with our spirits that we are children of God. And if we are children of God, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Then he says in verse 26, for the Spirit himself, notice the word himself, the Spirit himself intercedes for us. He's standing in the gap for us, praying for us, representing us, bringing our needs, ourselves, to the Father. How does he do it? With groans. That's the word Stephen used in Acts 7.34 when he was given his testimony. He said there how the Israelites groaned under this despotic rule of the Pharaoh. And this is the Holy Spirit groaning in prayer in us. For the Father knows the mind of the Spirit. And the Spirit prays for us in accordance with God's will. What an indispensable person is the Holy Spirit when it comes to prayer. Now we know that we've got this vital link with our Father that is closer than a brother to us. Now we know that in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him, who have called according to his purpose. Therefore, this is our fourth no more. No more perhaps, only purpose. No more maybes, only a purpose, God's purpose. Verses 28 to 30. Now please, let's now talk more about what God has done for us and less about what we do for him. So the emphasis now is on what God has done for us. So what makes us absolutely certain that God is working in my predicament, that God is working in my situation, that God is turning around the circumstances in my life by his goodness for me and his purpose? How do we know this? Well, listen to what it involves. First of all, it involves an ever-embracing presence. It says here, in all things, not some things, in all things. God doesn't work from a distance from us. He works in all things. Wherever you are, wherever you're with, whatever you're facing, whatever you lost, whatever shocks you've had, God is working in all things to grow you that you may know him better. God is working. So when you come to an end of a good day, you can say, thank you, Lord. I'm still a child of God. You come to an end of a difficult day, a day that has been very unsuspecting by way of what's happened to you, you can still say at the end of that day, praise God, I'm still a child of God. Because God hasn't changed his mind about you. Then we have an ever-enabling power. It says here, God works. It doesn't say all things are working out for the good. No, that's the way the world interprets that verse. No, it says God is working in all things. There's a huge difference. And in the Greek, this stands as the progressive present continuous God is working progressively. God is making headway. God is making a way for you through the wilderness, through the rivers. He's working on your behalf progressively with power. That's why Paul says we are to work out our salvation with trembling because it's God who has worked within you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Then also, we have an ever-enlarging provision. Notice there that God is working for the good, the good. The word good means prosperous. It means to have all that you need. You see, God is good. 
Therefore, whatever he does is good. God does never do anything which is not good. God can only what, do what is good. When he looked at the creation and he saw everything he made each day, he said it was good because it came from his hand and from his heart. And when he created you, you came from his heart. You came from his hand. He created you. And though we fell away, but thank God through Christ he's brought us back. How much more does he not appreciate you and value you because he's recreated you in Christ Jesus? And so he's good, he's generous, he provides for us. Then also we are people who love him. Now that's amazing. Because in Paul's day you don't love your God. You run away from him, you fear him. You appease him, you offer him sacrifices. They even sacrifice their children to certain gods. And here Paul says, whom you love. Incredible. That this is the living God's gospel. That God has won our hearts through his love for us. Therefore we can love him back because he initiated your salvation through sending his son on your behalf. And then we have an ever enthralling purpose. We have been called according to his purpose. You see, he initiates things. God must act, otherwise there's no salvation. And when it comes to his purpose, there are two areas in which God's purpose is mainly working in your life. And if you are in these two areas, you will not have much difficulty in discovering God's will for your life. And that is, he's called you to be a fisher of men. That's his number one purpose. And his second purpose is that you be an ambassador for his kingdom. And if you're working in those two areas, you can't go wrong. And, and again, just to say this, that when it comes to Romans 8.28, when it comes to that verse of Scripture, don't be like panicky Jacob. My goodness, Jacob panicked. Big time. Just think of it. Joseph was gone. All he had was a bloody coat, which he thought was Joseph's blood, but it was a goat's blood. There's a message there, eh? Reuben was disgraced. Judah was dishonest. He committed incense with his daughter-in-law Tamar. Simeon and Levi had broken his heart. <laughs> when the prince of the Shechemites raped their daughter Dinah, somehow they got some plan which the Shechemites agreed to that their men would be circumcised. And at the height of their pain, these two men went with their swords and killed every man. Jacob was devastated. Dinah was defiled, that goes without saying. Simeon was now in, in Egyptian prison. His beloved Rachel was dead. Famine threatened the family. Now came a demand from Egypt that young Benjamin must appear before the governor, otherwise no more supplies. He cries out in Genesis 42. You have deprived me of my children. Joseph's no more. Simeon's no more. Now you want to take my beloved Benjamin away. Oh, everything's against me. Everything's against me. I'm bereaved. I'm bereaved. But was he? Was everything really against Jacob? No. These things were working secretly and sovereignly, working out for his good because God was working in his circumstances. Irrespective of family sins, irrespective of family's failures, irrespective of his fears, irrespective of him seeing his future as just black. No, the God who is light, 
was working his sovereign plan out through Jacob and his family. And in the end, when he heard that his beloved Joseph was the prime minister of Egypt, with all the food for the world, risen there by God's grace to be the saviour of the world, as it were, Jacob was reunited with his son. And how that story went on from there. And so let's not be panicky when things don't work out like you plan they work out. Let's not panic when things disappoint us, when people disappoint us, when our plans flop, when we don't make the pass mark, when people misunderstand us. Let's not panic. Just commit your way to the Lord and know that in every circumstances, in everything, God is working for your good. Because he loves you and you love him. And you have his purpose in mind. Rather be like patient Joseph. Even though he was betrayed by his brothers, even though he was let down by many people, saw prison for many years, and yet when his brothers finally appeared before him, about the third time it was, he revealed himself to them and said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Let's be like Joseph. Let's be patient. Because you see, what we need is the fruit of patient endurance. And that's what I see in Romans 8.28. The fruit of patient endurance. Because the fr Romans 8.28 to me is like a fertile tree. Filled with the fruit of patient endurance. Which the book of Revelation says that we as Christians must have. As we go through tribulation and tests and trials. And this verse of scripture has all the fruit you need when it comes to having patient endurance. Because the verses before that on the Holy Spirit. And the verses that follow it. Verses 29 and 30 which we'll look at now in just a few moments are the fertile ground, the divine fertility, as it were, that feeds the roots of Romans 8.28, giving it this wonderful tree of promise that we can have strength for our daily needs and be exceedingly powerful in it. And so Romans 8.28 also goes on to say in verse 29 and 30, and by the way, when we get to these verses, for those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Please, people, don't get hung up about predestination and God's election, please. Because they are not for our logic. We cannot have our logic to satisfy that wonderful truth in those verses. They are for our living. And not for our controversy. And how many theologians have fought about this? You know, where, how can you marry man's responsibility with God's sovereignty? Well, to me, there are two railway tracks heading towards the throne of grace, and that's where they meet. So uh, let's not get into all that. I just want to say one thing about verse 29. And it's this. God has always and will be like Jesus. That's, that verse hit me just the other day from John's Gospel. God will always be like Jesus. Like nobody else. God is like Jesus. As a saintly bishop once translated that verse in 1 John, God is Christ-like, and in him there's no unchristlikeness at all. I like that. You see, he wants all people to be like his son. And God is going to have a Christian universe. Amen? Read about it in Ephesians 1. China thinking of colonizing the moon. <laughs> and man want to live on the Mars. Listen, it's all going to be Christian one day. It's all going to be, it belongs to Jesus anyway. And when the new world comes, so will the new universe come when the Lord comes back. 
So he wants all of us to be like Jesus. So he's our older brother. He stands amongst us. That's where he loves to be, that he may be amongst his brothers and sisters. Because he's Emmanuel. Emmanuel means us with God, as much as God with us. And so we don't need a manual, we need Emmanuel. We need his presence amongst us. That's where he loves to be. He's amongst us right now, by his spirit, moving from heart to heart, mind to mind, need to need, opening up your mind by the power of his word as it comes to you. He's Emmanuel in our midst. But there's more in verse 30. Four truths here which I tell you are just inseparable, indestructible. Four great truths. Those he predestined. And I thought about it this week. I thought, you know, life is not bumper cars. Have you played, used these bumper cars? I remember as a youngster going to Durban Beach and playing bumper cars. They, you get in these bumper cars and the wheel is like a supercharged power steering, you know. <laughs> you can't go straight. And you just go like this and problem bumps you from behind, bumps you from the side, and you bump into them. And sometimes life seems to be like that, but it's not. We've got a destiny. We know where we're going. We don't go around in circles being bumped around. And so we're more like a rally car where Jesus is the navigator who's telling us exactly where to go and where to turn, where to stop, where to slow down. Yes, we have our accidents, we get bogged down and all sorts of things, but the navigator doesn't leave us. He doesn't say, you're a bad driver, get out the car. No, no, no. He's called you. He's got a purpose for your life. He wants you to get to the winning road, to the winning streak, to the winning posts. Because that's his destiny and he's there waiting for us. He'll bring us there by his grace. Then those he predestined, he called. There's no hint of any manipulation in God's call to you. God doesn't manipulate you when he calls you. Zacchaeus found this out. When the Lord looked up through those trees or through those leaves of that sycamore tree, he said, Zacchaeus, come down. I must come to your house today. Zacchaeus knew that here was a man who knew who he was, where he was, where he stayed, what he did. And Zacchaeus says, if he knows all about me, he can have all me. And he became a new man that day in Christ because Jesus called him. And I wonder if someone has been called this morning by Jesus to come away out of where you're hiding, come out of that darkness, come out of those leaves. Even Adam and Eve tried to hide behind leaves after they sinned. But God knew where they were, and God knows where you are. And he calls you because he's got goodness for you, he's got good plans for you, and he's got a destiny for you. Then those he called, he justified. Well, what can we say about that? I've often heard it said that to be justified is God seeing you as though you've never sinned. Mm, sounds good, doesn't it? But you did sin. We all sinned and fell short of God's glory. And that's why Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and raised from the grave for our justification. But having been justified, put right with God legally, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access into this grace in which we now stand. So though our sins were like scarlet, they are now as white as snow. Isn't it wonderful? I know when I slip up and I do things I shouldn't do, I think of white snow. I think of white snow. On a boiling day, I think of white snow because I know that Jesus Christ died for my forgiveness. And he's put me right with himself for time and for eternity. Then lastly, he's glorified. Also past tense, done. Delivered, sealed. It's yours. Glory, heaven. It's past tense, errors tense. He's glorified you. Jesus said, didn't he pray this for you? Father, I want those who you've given me to be with me 
that they may see my glory, the glory I had before the creation of the world. That prayer is answered. Just keep faithful to him. Keep faithful to him. Well, friends, can you see now why that wonderful promise of Romans 8.28 is so great when you consider all those verses before and afterwards? But now I'll last no more. Should I say the second last no more? Verse 31 to 39. Here we come to the great crescendo of Romans 8. A glorious doxology to theology. No more unanswered questions. No more unanswered questions. There are seven here, but let me put them into four. Let me put them into four. First of all, any opposition? Any opposition? Well, what does Paul say? What can we say in response to this? Oh, don't worry, it's not certain. What can we say in response to this, he says? If, in fact, the word if is not a good translation, by the way. Since God is for us, who can be against us? No opposition. Nobody but nobody can be against us. If God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how much more won't he freely give us all things together with him? With every provision. He has not withheld his son. So the voice of opposition, is silenced. Any charges? Can any person charge us? Can anyone intimidate us? And say, oh, oh, look what you were. How can you call yourself a Christian? Uh-uh. No, verse 33. All charges have been dropped because it's God who justifies us. Not only have these charges been dropped, they've been cancelled, thrown away as far as the east is from the west. And the judge has paid our ransom for us. He became, in fact, our ransom on the cross. And he's given us his righteousness as an eternal gift for all time and eternity. Voices of intimidation silenced. Any condemnation? Verse 34? No. How can anyone condemn us? Who's going to condemn us? Christ Jesus who died for us. He took out condemnation for us. He lives. He was, he was raised from the dead. He reigns as well. And he's praying for us. Talk about the Holy Spirit praying for you. Jesus is praying at the right hand of the Father. And the, the word there, he's an advocate. And the Latin word for advocate means somebody whose voice is spoken in the place of yours. Because your voice cannot be heard there. Your advocate speaks in your defense. And Jesus Christ is our defense. He's our advocate. Answering any accusations. Because he has paid for them all on the cross. And it's wonderful to think that when you pray in Jesus' name, yes, you had no access to the Godhead, but when you pray in Jesus' name, the Father actually hears your voice in Christ. And that's what makes prayer so personal and so powerful. Lastly, any separation? Can anyone cut us off from love of God in Christ Jesus? Well, now we come to some very interesting things. Because Paul lists seven things here, which so often when they happen to us, we think that God doesn't love us anymore. We think that God's favor has been withdrawn because we've done something bad or, 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 or our self-image suffers and all sorts of things. And we think God doesn't love us because these circumstances are now what I don't really need in my life. Do I need this? Have you ever heard people say this? Oh, do I need this in my life? I don't need this in my life. I've got too much going on. And often we say, well, Lord, where are you? Don't you love me anymore? Well, Paul lists seven things here. They all happened to Paul. They all happened to Jesus. And some of these things will happen to you as well. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Can trouble? No troubles here. Hardship? 
persecution? Your kids going to school because they're Christian? Oh, we're not like that in this country yet, but it's happening. You don't get promotion because you're a Christian? Can persecution, can nakedness, can hunger, can danger, can sword, sword being the gun today? No. Because then he quotes Psalm 44. Oh, yes, we're like people destined to die. We face death all day long, as he puts it there, quoting Psalm 44. We're like sheep being led to the slaughter. That's Christians for you. That's the world's view of us. But 37 says, no, we are more than conquerors. In all these things, these things, these seven things, in all these things, we are more, we are hyper-conquerors through him who loved us. And that's why we can go through all seasons through Christ who keeps on strengthening us. For I'm convinced, now the last two verses, I want to quote the New Living Translation here, that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. The voice of separation silenced. All these voices which seek to get you down are silenced. No more unanswered questions. Only amen. Hear, hear. Hallelujah. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now let me introduce you to this special person whose memory I cherish. And let me tell you, it's been an absolute privilege for me to bring his Bible to church this morning. I wish I had this Bible every time I preached. It's a very special Bible. A bullet hole in the back, a bullet hole in the front. You can see. And if I, if I open it here to the front, I see that this Bible belonged to Josiah Neolonga. This is the Kanyama Bible, spoken in Namibia. Now, Josiah was a young man in the 60s. He was, he was longing for a Bible of his own. The Bible Society translated this Bible. It took them 30 years to do so. The first published Bible in Kanyama was in the 1972, I think it was. 74, 74. And the first edition reached Southwest Africa as it was then known. And Josiah got his Bible, this Bible, his first Bible. Now, he wasn't a Christian when he got it. But he read this Bible. And he gave his life to Jesus Christ. There you can see he's got his name in the front. Got his name there. His four children and his wife's name. And his children were born from 1971 to 1976. Two boys and two girls. He was a school teacher. And he's taught in a local school. You know the story, don't you? Southwest Africa in those days. Swapo soldiers were coming across from Angola to seek to take over the country. I know all about it because I was there. But this man was living there. And what he did after the class, he taught Bible stu uh, studies. And he knew that he had to be careful on his way home. Because the Swapo 
soldiers knew about him, and they were against Christians because Christians were seen as sellouts against the cause. And so because he knew he was a marked man, he had to be careful. So he went home one day after Bible study, but unfortunately, he walked into an ambush. He walked into an ambush, guns pointing at him. Give me your watch. Take your clothes off. We want it all. And Josiah said, wait, 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 wait. Please, please, let me just read something to you before you do anything. Because somehow he knew this was his last few moments on earth. And he took his Bible and opened it, Romans 8. And if you look at it, you'll see that the verses that he read to his robbers were actually all underlined in pencil. I'll get, to, I'll get to that. I'll show that by now in a second. All underlined in pencil. And where he began reading was... Since God is for us, who can be against us? He read from there. All the verses I've gone through with you this morning, he was reading to his captives, to these men who had trained their guns on him. And as he was reading, he got around about verse 38, 39, when the first bullet went off. Hit the back of his Bible. That, Bible, that bullet went right through. It hit him. The other one ended around about 1 Samuel. Didn't go right through. The other, other bullets hit him in his body, his head, and he fell to the ground with his Bible on his chest. And there you can see something of his blood on the pages of the scriptures. And he died instantly. Well, they took what he, they could from him, his watch, his clothes, whatever possessions he had, and they left him. But one of these soldiers remembered there was a Bible lying next to him. So he went back to get it because he, as a youngster, was, used to go to mission school and he wanted a Bible as a youngster. He never got it. Instead, he was infiltrated by communist doctrine. Went to Russia for training. Your friends. I, I better not bang the pulpit too much. I decided to such a burden when it comes to getting the word of God to young people. Really. Before other doctrines get them. He remembered the Bible lying next to that dead man. He went back and he got it. But he didn't tell any of his friends about it because he knew they would kill him for having a Bible. And so he kept it. Then one night he was doing guard duty and he's on his own and he made a fire. And as he was sort of trying to read the Bible and he thought of what he did, he shot that man, he felt terribly guilty. And he threw the fire, Bible into the fire. And there you can see how it started burning. But the man was told, or it must have been the Holy Spirit or somebody, because he said, no, I can't let it burn. And he took it out the fire. Blew it all off. And then he had to make a decision. And he decided to elope from his soldiers. And he slipped away from them one night. Crossed the border into Southwest Africa. Went to see a Lutheran missionary. Shared the story with him. And the Lutheran missionary took this Bible and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. And he became a new creature in Christ. He was forgiven of his sins. And he became a follower of Jesus Christ. And from there he gave himself up to the authorities because he wanted to stay and serve his people with the Lord's gospel. And so the missionary took this Bible from the soldier and gave him a brand new Kenyama Bible. And the missionary sent this Bible to the Bible Society in Cape Town. From whence it is kept in our archives. From whence I went to get it just before Christmas. You, I wish I could talk to people in the street with this Bible in my hand. Because here at Josiah Lingalonga, though he's yet, yet he still speaks. He has a man who loved Romans chapter 8. 
And if I've just gotten you hungry for Romans 8 this morning, then I've achieved my purpose. Here was a man who stood his ground, was prepared to pay for the gospel with his life, who led one of his robbers to Christ. Bishop Frank Retief, many of you know Frank Retief, took the story over to America and also was able to raise some funds for the Kanyama people. That's why the work of the Bible Society, and I now speak on Sunday's behalf too, lies very heavy in my heart, very heavy in my heart, because you cannot evangelize without the Bible. On page, on your device, and on your lips. You've got to have the Bible. And so I want to just say one more no more. One more no more. No more smug and silent Christians. No more silent Christians. I've often heard it being said, just do good works and if you need to say anything, say it. I've got my doubts about that. I really have. Yes, of course, let them see your good deeds so they may glorify God on the day he visits us. Of course, your good deeds speak for the Lord. But unless you give a testimony, unless you refer to the word of God, how can there be any true salvation? So let there be no more silent Christians. Let's not get all taken up. Oh, yes, these truths of God's grace in Romans 8. Oh, they grip us and it's wonderful. But listen, Paul never wrote chapter 9. Please understand what I'm saying now. He didn't write the word chapter 9. That was put there a thousand years ago by some bishop. What goes on after chapter 9? Paul says, in the Holy Spirit, I'm speaking the truth. That I have a continual sorrow and anguish in my heart for my own people, the Jews, the Israelites. I am prepared to go to hell for my own people if they may just know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. For just look how God has blessed them. They've got the covenants, they've got the glory, they've got the patriarchs, they've got the ancestral line of Jesus Christ, they've got the temple, they've got so much. And yet they reject the Lord Jesus Christ when he came. I want to reverse that, says Paul. I want to reverse that. I want my people to come to know the Christ who is to be ever praised. And friends, if you haven't got that anguish in your spirit, you haven't got that heartache for those who are close to you who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. I've got two brothers who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, friends, I, and the older you get, the harder it is to follow Jesus Christ. I said to somebody, and please understand again what I'm trying to say. The time to come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is before you get into your retirement home. Before you get into the last year or two of your life. It may be too late then. Again, that's why children's work is so important. That's why it's so important to reach young adults for Christ. No more silent Christians. Let me say this before I close. One of my favorite characters, Andrew in the Bible. You know, Andrew is always connecting people with Jesus. And that's what you are as a Christian. You're a connector. Connecting people with Jesus Christ. He was following John the Baptist and John said, Look, this Lamb of God. Look, the Lamb of God. 
and Andrew saw Jesus. And Andrew went and followed Jesus, together with who we think is John. And, and Jesus turned around and said, what do you want? And Andrew said, we want to see where you're staying. And Jesus said, come along. And it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. And Andrew stayed with Jesus for an hour or two. <laughs> was he the same Andrew that came out of that house as went in? The first thing he did, he went to find his brother Simon. Simon, we found the Messiah. And the Bible says Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. And Jesus looked at Simon and said, Simon, you're Peter. Build my church on your confession. First thing he did was want to find his brother. How long does it take to become a missionary for Jesus? How long does it take to become a witness? How long does it take to become a martyr for Jesus Christ? One to two hours with Jesus? Right? How long have you spent in this place? How long have you spent in this building? Hour? Hour and a half? Isn't that long enough for you to become a witness for Jesus? And maybe you came into the service and you're rather cold. You haven't given your testimony or witness for Jesus Christ for months and for years. You have never led anyone to Christ since you became a Christian. My friends, this morning that changes. Because the fire of God's zeal is being fired up in your heart. And now through your presence in God's presence, he has lit that flame again in your heart. That as for me and my house, we will serve and speak up for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because let me say this, that the most exciting person you can ever talk about to anybody is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. No one more exciting. I said that to a lady just the other day at lunch table. He used to work for this World Council of Churches in Geneva, but didn't know the Lord. Sad. Sad. And so, friends, in honor of this man's life, who basically brought the sermon this morning, though he's dead, yet he preaches, may you also be remembered as somebody who was pregnant with the word. I heard a preacher one day, he had a big belly, quite fat man. <laughs> he says, I'm pregnant with the word. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm getting that way. But I mean spiritually, not physically. So let's be pregnant with the word. No more silent Christians. And let's hear your testimony in this church sometime. Amen.